Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leela. Hello, hello. Good morning, everyone. It's nice for us all to be back in the studio. Yes, except for this time, Sans Spike. It seems like, um, you know, it's going to be even harder for us to wrangle all four of us into the same spot once... uh, now that we have four people on the crew, um, but obviously uh, Spike, being the legend that he is, has prepared a pre-record for us. Uh, so you're gonna, you're not gonna have to miss out on his excellent interviewing this week. Um, so uh, amazing! Yeah, should we get started with the rundown? Let us do that. Yes. So number one, we have Bernie Dean, who is the CEO of Industry Super Australia a marketing and advocacy body that runs collective programs on behalf of some of Australia's largest profit-to-member super funds. Industry super funds' objective is to maximise the retirement accounts of more than 5 million members of industry super funds. And they join us today to talk about how under-18s who are in the workforce are missing out on compulsory super contributions that could cost them thousands in the long run. Then we'll hear from Chris... Chris Rust from Food Not Bombs Melbourne, who was joined by Spike earlier this week to talk about food security under the cost of living crisis. Food Not Bombs Melbourne are a grassroots community-based volunteer food service with the Melbourne chapter part of the worldwide movement Food Not Bombs movement, which is committed to preparing vegan meals for people doing it tough. And after that, we are going to be joined by Amelia from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, or CARF, who is going to be joining us with a quick reminder about this uh, coming Saturday's snap rally to protest the far right in sunshine. So this anti-fascist counter rally is being called in resistance against the National Socialist Network organizing a white power lifting meet at Sunshine's Legacy Boxing Gym. And CARF has asked rally attendees to meet at the Sunshine West IGA car park. And so we're going to have some details about that in our show notes, but we're also going to be talking to Amelia about how people can keep themselves safe uh, as they attend in solidarity. And finally, we'll be joined by Michael Kane, National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union, who's going to be speaking with us about the urgent need for labor protections for transport gig workers, including rideshare and food delivery workers. So our conversation today is coming in the wake of the tragic road death of another food delivery worker in Sydney over the past weekend which makes the 12th food delivery driver known to have been killed in Australia since 2017, although these numbers are likely underreported. So we'll talk a bit more about what the Fair Work Commission can be doing, uh, about the sort of federal protections required for transport gig workers, and we'll also provide some information about the Melbourne Gig Worker Support Service, uh, where if you are a transport gig worker, you can access... um, information about understanding your rights and resolving workplace disputes. Uh, But that's what we've got on for today. So as always, a packed out show. Um, Stay tuned and we'll be back with you in a moment. Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the U.S. dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday, 6th of August at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page No Orcas Coalition Vic, a 3CR supporter. 
LGBTIQA plus people, that's come from a large history of people standing up and acting up for our rights and our communities. Talking Queer Pacifica, talking about us. You know, there's very like violent act of like hatred and bigotry towards trans people, where they demonise the image of trans people, especially trans women. For working class queers, for queers of colour, for those who are poor and homeless, the struggle is continuing. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 27th of July. A group of 10 human rights organisations are calling on the international community to help stop Singapore's government plan to execute two people this week. The government of Singapore has set the executions of a 56-year-old man and a 45-year-old woman convicted of drug trafficking. If these executions proceed, Singapore will have executed 15 people for drug offences in the past 15 months. The network of rights organisations, including the Transformative Justice Collective in Singapore and Amnesty International, are urging the UN on drugs and crime and international leaders to speak out against the planned executions. A joint statement from the network says experts have confirmed that, quote, a disproportionate number of minority persons are being sentenced to the mandatory death penalty, and that Singapore claims that the law is deterring powerful so-called kingpins of drugs are false. In other news this week, the federal government has revoked the license of labor hire firm Lynx after a sustained union campaign raised claims of modern slavery. The Australian Workers' Union says hundreds of Pacific Islander workers will be found new jobs after it was revealed Lynx workers have been relying on charities and community supports across Australia to meet basic food and accommodation needs. Workers at Lynx reported that management are withholding workers' visas, refusing to provide payslips, and of bullying and threats to cut hours when concerns are raised. The union also said members have told stories of Lynx management making excessive deductions from workers' pay for substandard accommodation. In other news, migrant workers and advocates have this week welcomed an announcement that the federal government will introduce a range of visa-based protections for migrant workers facing issues of exploitation in their workplaces. The federal government has committed to reforms and whistleblower protections, including visa protections for migrants who report workplace abuse and mistreatment from employers. The announcement also outlines plans for a new type of visa that will allow workers to remain in the country while workplace exploitation matters are addressed in court. The Migrant Workers Centre welcomed the move and said that for the reforms to be effective, they must be co-designed with migrant workers in a way that centres their experiences and protects their pathways to permanent settlement. And finally, in news headlines for today... Advocates are calling for solidarity with social workers who are also criminalised and formerly incarcerated people who have historically been excluded from the Australian Association of Social Workers, or AESW. A clause in the AESW Constitution, which is up for review this week, states that people convicted of an offence punishable by imprisonment for a period of more than 12 months cannot be a member. The clause disproportionately affects First Nations people and individuals from other marginalised groups who face mass incarceration due to systemic racism and poverty. 
Social workers and advocates say the AESW board has ignored social workers with lived prison experience by previously only asking for feedback from existing members and hope the vote next week will result in the removal of the clause. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 27th of July. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Disabled people are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay with spending money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP, but are on Job Seeker instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody else in society. The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a boring old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Hello, and just before we go to our next guest, I just wanted to touch a little bit on that previous headline because it is very near and dear to my heart. Um, With advocates who are calling for solidarity with people who have been criminalised or formerly incarcerated people, um, this is an issue that's kind of been ongoing for an incredibly long period of time because the ASW, excluding people who have had a criminal record or have been criminalised, means that what kind of social workers are we getting? Um, And often we have people who are in the industry who are mainly privileged, who have gone through the entire university process and also been able to contribute to 1,000 working hours unpaid labour and to make sure that we have social workers that actually come from the lived experience that we're trying to support. If we only have people of extreme privilege who can just get through the system um, and this is the people who are supporting people experiencing racism, stigma, especially in discrimination in health and welfare settings, especially in prisons, especially in the family policing system. This is not representative of the people that I want to work with, nor is it representative of the people that should be in the field. And I will say this full-heartedly, is that if you are if you are a worker, a social worker, and you're not supporting this, take a look at your own ASW code of ethics because it continuously says we will fight to destroy systems of impression and that continues to be the ASW and related bodies. And we really need to fight to make this better. Um, and I would really commend anybody to really look into uh, Flat Out or um, Sisters Inside. They've been doing really incredible policy work around this, um, particularly Tina, who is working at Policy and Sisters Inside, and ensuring that we have people from the lived experiences that we're trying to support. I have never had, uh, personally, like even navigating really challenging health and welfare systems, I benefited more from people who I could tell by just talking to them and, you know, just knowing their energy <laughs> that they had been through 
um, these systems as well. Talking to somebody who has basically your life or death in their hands or making sure that, you know, they get to decide who has your job. They get to decide whether or not you get your children back. That is not somebody that you want who is completely devoid of the system um, or is so far removed that they can't even relate to it anymore. So, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be navigating some of the hardest experiences of your life um, and being, you know, supposedly supported by people uh, who've only ever learned about this in the classroom. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much, Inez. I think it's it's absolutely fundamental that people that are members of the AASW uh, do support, you know, this motion to include formerly incarcerated people as, you know, members of the AASW um, it, it seems like such a fundamental part of the profession. And yet, um, as Inez has said, this issue continues to be swept under the rug. Um, so kudos to you. Thank you. And we'll have a nice show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back shortly. If you're struggling with drugs, alcohol, gambling or food, or concerned about somebody who is, tune in to The Living Free Show on 3CR at 1pm every Thursday. I don't know how I got there, but and I couldn't stop it. I had stopped expecting that anybody cared. Never enough. I'm never enough. It's never enough. He's never enough. That was the confusion. Tune in to Living Free, stories of recovery from addictive behaviour, Thursdays at 1pm on 3CR. Or listen at 3CR on digital radio or podcasts and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Being able to center myself and be okay in myself and turn my world around. Living free. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Accent Women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. And now we will be joined by Bernie Dean, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Industry Super Australia, a marketing and advocacy body that runs collective programs on behalf of some of Australia's largest profit to member super funds. Industry Super's objective is to maximise the retirement accounts of more than 5 million members of Industry Super Funds. They join us today to talk about how under-18s who work are missing out on compulsory super contributions that could cost them thousands in the long run. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Bernie. 
Good morning, Inez. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. I thought maybe we could start off with the fact that about 375,000 of Australia's under-18 workers are locked out of Australia's retirement system because they're not entitled to compulsory super contributions. And from my understanding, it's because they do not work more than 30 hours for the same employer. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's going on here? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's 2023 and we've got, you know, so many young Australian workers uh, locked out of a right that is uh, provided to every other Australian worker. Um, You know, it's an unfair law. It's been around for so long. And really, it's a a form of uh, age-based discrimination that is way past its use-by date. Um, It doesn't just discriminate uh, for the sake of it. It actually has a real monetary impact. So, as you pointed out, unless a a person under 18 uh, works 30 hours or over for the same employer, they're missing out on thousands of dollars. So, for the average under 18-year-old, that's about $900 a year before they turn 18. And if those small amounts were paid each year uh, before they turn 18, uh, it would attract decades of compound interest, which is kind of like you know one of the dynamos of, of superannuation, and would grow to be more than $10,000 in today's money when they actually retire. So it's got a real big sting in the tail for these young workers, and it's, it also just breeds disengagement. I mean, super is hard enough to think about when you're young at work. It seems like it's a long way off. And if your interaction, your first interaction with the super system is that you're missing out on something that somebody standing next to you is getting because they're a few months older or a year older, then that really doesn't set you off on the right, you know, on the right track uh, with superannuation. Yeah, absolutely. I think your note about it being the introduction into the work workforce, um, it can definitely be disheartening. Um, and you've also mentioned uh, the legislation, which I wanted to touch on. Um, when super was first introduced in 1992, uh, excluding under-18s was negotiated into legislation because it feared, I think, fees and insurance would erode smaller super balances. So why was this put into place and why is it currently out of date? Yeah, you're spot on. And there's, it was a, it's a relic from the 1990s uh, when super was actually first set up, compulsory super. And back then, it probably made sense that you would put some restrictions on uh, how many hours a, a person worked because the super rate back then, the, the amount of money that your employer paid on top of your wages, was around 2 or 3%. And if you're only working, say, 10, 15, 20 hours, they're relatively small amounts of money, and super funds back then didn't have the same scale, and so their fees would quite quickly corrode or erode those small balances. Now, you jump forward 30 years, there's all these new protections around uh, young workers with small balances. Super funds aren't allowed to uh, charge more than a certain amount of money per year, uh, for, for part-time workers or those with um, uh, small balances. And there's also protections to make sure that young workers who have multiple jobs don't end up with multiple super accounts. There's, there's laws that make sure that they, they have one one account so you're not paying multiple fees. And so with those protections in place, the argument about, you know, small uh, small accounts being eaten away 
is no longer relevant. And the other thing to remember is that now the super rate is not 2 or 3%, it's 11%. So young workers are missing out on another 11, you know, 11% of uh, their, their wage uh, for each hour they work that could be going into their super account. So they would be building up their balances a lot quicker than what they were in the 1990s. Yeah, they definitely would be building up their balances a lot quicker. And the 11% number is definitely astounding, given that, you know, 992 wasn't that long ago at all. Mm. Um, And I think I'm also interested in the fact that it's 30 hours with the same employer. And I guess, what does this mean for young people who are missing out on super contributions? Because right now, highly casualized workforce and also the patterns in which most people most young people work are like school holidays or after school so maybe could you touch a little bit more on like the 30 hours a week and how young people are missing out absolutely you know you you think about the way our workforce operated the nature of it the demographics of it in the early 90s it's completely changed now you, uh, you're right about the increase in casualisation, less secure work. People have more jobs at the same time. Uh, our research shows that on any given week in 2023, about 90% of under-18 part-time workers aren't going to work more than 30 hours for one employer. They might do 15, uh, they might do uh, 10 here and 15 over here, adding up to 25 uh, but um, they're not generally going to be working more than 30 hours a week. The misnomer here, or one of the misconceptions that people have, is that it is just those couple of weeks over summer. Um, our research shows that a lot of part-time workers under the age of 18 are actually working for significant periods of the year and not just around Christmas or New Year. So they're actually, you know, they're, they're more serious um, uh Consistent wage earners throughout the year, and if you're not if you're not working over thirty hours a week for six months of the year, but you're getting close, then you're missing out on a heck of a lot of superannuation, and that that's another reason why this kind of outdated rule, this outdated threshold, should go. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you've said about making sure that young people kind of get their comeuppance, especially when they are working extra. And like, you know, as you said, your report shows it's not just working a little bit at Christmas. A lot of younger people are working uh, more and more. And especially in a highly casualized workforce, um, it's definitely important that under 18s yeah, get get what they deserve from what they're working. Um mm. What I found interesting, I, I think personally, when I was researching this, is that under 18s in the workforce definitely still pay tax, but they can't contribute to super. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, exactly. You know, um, I've got a, um, I've got kids and they're just starting out, you know, doing part-time work and stuff like that. And when one of them found out that uh, they got their first pay slip and they looked at it and they said, well, you know, what's the... Tax, and then you have to kind of sit down and have the explanation about everybody in Australia pays tax. That's what provides for hospitals and schools and roads and everything else. And and then you kind of say, oh yeah, but you're not going to get superannuation. They um they kind of look at you, kind of going, well, how fair is that? I have to pay the same amount of tax as the person that's 18 uh, and contribute to the federal budget for all those good things that we have in our lives. 
but I don't get the benefit of, you know, 11% of my salary going on top of my salary into a super fund. That is just the clearest uh, injustice of this whole thing. Yeah, 100%. And knowing, (laughs) I know that getting those first few paychecks and being like, what's happening here <laughs> um, is definitely helpful, I guess, to understand, uh, particularly for people who are surrounded by people who are also under 18. Um, and what does it mean that 30 roll, sorry, what does removing the 30 hours a week threshold mean for both young people and specifically employers? Because I know probably some employers may be listening to this um, and being like, okay, well, we removed the 30 hours a week. What does that have to do with me? Well, the, I suppose on the on the young workers' side, it's all upside because it, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll now be getting uh, their super paid on any hours that they work. It doesn't matter what, if, if we get the change made, every hour that an um, under-18 person works, they'll be paid super annuation on top of that. We acknowledge, of course, that uh, that would um, add some modest costs to employers' payroll. Uh, now... There's a few things I'd say about that. First is that they are modest. Uh, we're talking about, you know, um, under-18s generally working part-time, um, you know, and we're talking about, you know, 900, $800 or $900 on average per year. So it's not going to break uh, many businesses. The other thing uh, to point out is that many employers actually pay this anyway. Um, yep. Larger and medium-sized employers that have, significant um, numbers of under-18 workers, they don't want the hassle of checking out every week who's worked more than 30 hours and who hasn't. So what they do is they just apply the one rule for all their workers. And that's the, from our perspective, that's the, that's the right thing to do. Uh, we do think that uh, the change could be implemented in a way that smooths the impact on those employers, especially the small or medium-sized ones. Um, and we're hoping that um, we can get, you know, the employer groups that represent these employers uh, to agree to that. Yeah, I think it sounds like a win-win kind of on all fronts, especially if employers are kind of already in that administrative process anyway. Um, I think maybe personally, um, I think when I was younger and I was working, uh, definitely while I was under 18, uh, super felt so far away and it felt like something that maybe it just seems like maybe a tomorrow problem, which I know getting older, it's definitely not true. But is there anything that you would like to say, I guess, to young people about super um, and how it is important? Yes. Um, well, um, I just turned 55 and uh, I can tell you that, that I still feel, I can still remember that for, that, that first paycheck. Uh, I was working at the art centre washing dishes um, it was uh, it was a really you know good feeling to get that first paycheck, and it just feels like yesterday that you know the, the last the last thirty five years or so has just gone so fast, mm. uh, and you, you, you know it might seem like a long way off, but um, the magic of our super system is that these relatively small amounts that go into this account when you're young, they sit there for decades, and then they get supercharged by compound interest and by your fund actually investing in things that deliver a good return so that when you start to get to uh, towards age 40 and then age 50, you can actually see the finish line because you start to get pretty tired. You kind of go, oh, I can see retirement there. And that's when you start to get engaged. So the earlier you can get engaged, the better. 
Uh, and that brings me, I suppose, to the practical things that, that young people can do uh, right now to check whether they're getting paid their super. It's really easy these days for young people to find out where their super's going uh, and how much they're getting paid and if they're getting paid. Many young workers actually find out too late that they actually haven't been paid the amount of super that might appear on their pay slip. So if you get in touch with your super fund, generally through an app, it's pretty easy to check, and then you can find out whether the, whether the amount of money that you're owed is getting paid. The other thing you can do is uh, talk to your union uh, and, and, and co-workers. If you do believe you're, you're not getting paid your superannuation when you're entitled to, you can get in touch with, uh, obviously, your union, but also with the tax office and make a complaint. Um, we've actually got a, a link on our website, uh, industrysuper.com, and you can obviously grab the research, but there's also some helpful tips there uh, for young workers uh, that they can use to find out whether they're getting paid the right amount and steps that they can take if they're not. Yeah, that's amazing. There's so many helpful links in there. We'll definitely put it in our show notes. Um, lastly, could you tell us how people have kind of been supporting the change to this legislation and what our listeners can do to support? Oh, well, uh, there's been a lot of support, actually. Um, you know, going right back to the start, when you actually say to somebody that under 18, under 18 part-time workers don't get superannuation and it, and it relates to a law from the 1990s, they kind of scratch their head and say, well, that's not right and that should change. And that's generally the case across everybody that we speak to. Uh, both unions, obviously, they're keen to see uh, this sort of uh, discrimination uh, removed from our law. Uh, but also employer groups. We've been speaking to lots of employer groups, and while some of them say, you know, we we um, we can't say that we kind of completely support growing our payroll and uh, and eating into our profits, we can acknowledge that this is something that needs to change. And so, there many of them are not going to oppose the change. We've got some employer groups that are actually embracing it and saying that uh, yes, it should be done. It should be done in a way that kind of eases the transition. Governments can do things like that. They can say, get ready for the change within a year or two years' time. It gives those relatively small and medium-sized employers time to get ready. Uh, and so we're hopeful that in the next six months or so, uh, our federal uh, our federal politicians, especially the federal government, uh, will commit to making this change. And by that time, I'm hoping that there's a really broad front of employers, uh, community groups, consumer groups and super funds that can all agree that, uh, that the government should make this change. Amazing. Thank you so much, Bernie. I learned so much in this interview and it was so insightful. And thank you so much for coming on the show and making the time to talk about such an important topic. Any time, Inez. We've just heard from Bernie Dean, who is the CEO of Industry Super Australia, a marketing and advocacy body that runs collective programs on behalf of some of Australia's largest profit-to-member super funds. And they joined us today to talk about how under-18s who are in the workforce are currently missing out on super contributions that could end up costing them thousands in the long run. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It's currently 731 3CR is Radical Radio. 
Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03 9419 8377. That's 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. And we're back on Thursday breakfast. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And yeah, we're going to be having a chat now. Um, Well, a little precursor chat to Spike's interview with Chris Rust from Food Not Bombs Melbourne um, about, I guess, the cost of living crisis and real pressing concerns about food security in Melbourne, but I guess around the country at the moment. So electricity and gas prices have continued to increase and it feels like in a capitalist economy there's a constant state of disease and discomfort within the community about the future where are we going to get our next meal from how are we going to pay next week's rent so food bank has reported that 20,000 people a month use traditional emergency food relief which indicates that there are thousands experiencing food security and food not bombs is a grassroots community organization that works to relieve food insecurity and this name suggests that food security and the right to regular affordable and nutritious meals is a human right not a privilege and it should be a priority for our governments rather than engaging in ridiculous military adventures and giving rich folks tax breaks. So um, I was wondering if you guys have uh, any thoughts about this, considering <laughs> that uh, we've been covering stuff around social security, around various other um, concerns around economic pressures under the cost of living crisis over the past few weeks. Yeah, I think um, just anecdotally from myself and a lot of my friends, I know that we are all kind of feeling the pressures of the cost of living crisis. And on top of that, we're kind of having to pick, should I buy that extra thing of soy milk or should I um, make sure that I pay my rent on time or my electricity? And on top of that, I think, you know, it maybe is not always the, the end goal, but it's also about, you know, social and emotional health and being part of your community and engaging with your peers And there's been times where I'm like, well, I can't actually afford to maybe go out and watch a movie with my friends because I have to make sure that I have groceries or I have to pay my rent on time. And uh, yeah, I think or make sure that I have enough food. And yeah, Mm. that's really hard, you know? Yeah, I think I had a little, um, I guess, ironic chuckle before because it is really all I think about (laughs) at the moment, unfortunately. And yeah, it's a huge, I think on top of, the practical elements of um, these cost of living stresses. It's also like the constant thinking about it and like, yeah, I guess wondering whether or not buying the $3 milk or the $2 milk is going to break you that that month or that payroll. So, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's, you know, framing it in terms of a crisis, like I think the term crisis gives us a good idea of like the urgency and the scale of how bad things are. But it also 
you know, provides this false uh, sense of immediacy when actually, you know, this has been going on for a mm-hmm. really long time, especially for folks that survive primarily on social security mm-hmm. payments or who have infrequent work. Um, these concerns have been pressing for a really long time and they're just getting worse, um, you know, as this rolling crisis continues to expand. And so, I mean, in light of this and also in light of, you know, we saw in May the federal government has uh, made a lot of decisions around what they want to spend on and what they've decided to, you know, keep the purse strings tight for. And when we were talking to Kristen O'Connell from Anti-Poverty Centre earlier uh, this year, like about a month ago, um, we were talking about the fact that, you know, Government expenditure isn't a zero-sum game. They can choose to spend on things like raising social security payments, on actually making sure that people have housing and, um, you know, financial security that will then allow them to weather, you know, things like massive inflationary rises. There are uh, regulatory issues uh, that can be addressed to, you know, prevent massive price gouging as well by by organizations that, you know, end up targeting people that are really doing it tough. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just wanting to jump in here and say, yeah, I was shocked and horrified um, uh, in regards to one of my interviews, I think it was two weeks ago, um, that covered a report that found corporate profits are driving inflation. And in the meantime, the government is deciding to control those by increasing interest rates, which just hurts people who, um, I guess, consumers who inherit those costs from landlords and from big businesses, um, when that's really not even the source of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. There's like, uh, there's this idea that there are people that will uh, benefit from, you know, these rolling crises, uh, and then just a whole large swathe of the population that is um, supposed to absorb this without complaint. Um, And so in light of this, uh, the sort of mutual aid type organizing of community meals, feeding community of the Food Not Bombs movement is so crucial. And so Chris Rust from Food Not Bombs Melbourne joined Spike earlier this week to talk about food security under this cost of living crisis. Um, And I'm really keen to hear that conversation now. Today on Thursday Breakfast, we're speaking to Chris Rust from Food Not Bombs. Food Not Bombs are a non-hierarchical grassroots organisation who have established ways of working together to meet our collective food security needs in ways that challenge the existing capitalist system that has failed us. Food Not Bombs also provides an example of what is possible when people work together to meet collective needs and not the greed of of a minority. Food Not Bombs also reminds us that there are alternatives to the way things are. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast, Chris. Oh, thank you. All right, so tell us a bit about um, Food Not Bombs in, in Melbourne and when did it start, who gets involved and what its main mission is. All right, well, yeah, Food Not Bombs exists to serve uh, free vegan food out on the streets. And it started uh, back in about 96, I think, and I started with it when I heard a call out on the sewer show on 3CR and they said, come into the city square, we serving food on a Monday night and I was working in Carlton so it was 
not much of a detour to go to the city to, to help with the food. And then Food Not Bombs itself, we just uh, collect leftovers from the Victoria Market, the organic grocery section. They've got an arrangement there that instead of putting it in the bins, they give it to us and we take it away and cook it up and make meals with it. So would you say that's the main, is the main, is the main mission solely to address food insecurity or is, does, does, is Food Not Bombs about more than that? Well, the original group that started 40 years ago in America started at a anti-war protest. People said we could serve food instead of governments paying for bombs. So that, that's the political part of the situation. It's just in the name there. And then in Melbourne, at the moment, we're mostly concentrating just on feeding people, but we do support with food for other groups when they're organising, if they're having meetings or conference or something, we can do some catering there for them. So how are meals produced and distributed, Chris? Well, at the moment we're doing three meals a week. There's Mondays and Tuesdays we cook up at the Collingwood Neighbourhood House in the flats down at Hoddle Street. And then Monday nights that goes out as a packaged meal because during COVID we couldn't have servings on the street where people were coming to eat. So we set up a system where we've got packaged meals that we take out and distribute. And at the moment we're going to the safe injecting room in North Richmond. And then on Tuesdays there's also a serving now in the park in Butler Street near Lennox Street in North Richmond. So at 7 o'clock there's a hot meal there for people. And then on Wednesday nights they're cooking up at the Catalyst Centre in Coburg. And that's an open meal. Everybody can come at 7 o'clock and have a sit-down meal. How do you choose your areas, Chris? Well, how do they have food? Yeah. Yeah. We used to go to Footscray, which was where there was a big serving. Other charity groups were going there and serving. So we were taking along the vegan food as an option for the people there. But then during COVID, we just had to try and find where the people were to feed. So then we decided on that. Is is vegan food, is part of serving vegan food like a, a political statement about how food is produced? Yes, uh, uh, that's one of the philosophies that's non-violent. So a Buddhist principle of non-violence would be vegan food, yeah. Can you talk more about that? <laughs> In turn, because it's about it's about not not it's like it's anti factory farming, um, is that right? Is that comes from not you know not not wanting to support factory farming, um, not wanting to support sort of capitalist um, ways of of producing food? Is that right? Which are seen to be violent. Yes, well, <laughs> it, that would be some people that comes philosophy, I suppose. So are people volunteers or are, are people paid to work at Food Not Bombs? Well, yeah, the people doing the Food Not Bombs are volunteers. It's just if you want to do something, you come along and cook food and serve the food and people collect the food from the market. And we've also got some arrangements with uh, Natural Tucker Bakery and Wild Things Grocery. We get leftovers from them as well. So, 
Is, volunteer, is volunteerism an, an important aspect of the Food Not Bombs philosophy? Well, it's just how it exists. Okay. So <laughs> okay. we, we don't have money to pay people. Fair so, yeah, we just, people get together and share the food out. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay, so we talked about that it was vegan food. Uh, do you guys, do Food Not Bombs get any, uh, any other support, like from local councils or from the city or? Well, yes, at the moment we're, using the Collingwood Neighbourhood House, so that probably comes under Yarra Councils. And and how do you develop those relationships? Was it just like a getting in touch with them? Well, yes, during COVID, we couldn't access the kitchen we were using and someone asked around and the Collingwood Neighbourhood House did have a food security program, so they have a giveaway of food and groceries. So they had the space there and the kitchen, so we were able to use it. Um, okay, this is another question. So, I don't know if you saw the, in the news recently there was the national, um, the uh, what's it called, the national wellbeing strategy or framework. No, I haven't heard of that. No. Uh, okay, well, it basically said that um, how, how Australians feel about what, the, how they feel about how secure they feel in Australia, and um, they said that on a scale of one to ten. This survey reckons that um, people felt it was about 7.5, that they generally felt secure. In your experience working with um, working at Food Not Bombs, what, what have you seen out in the community? Do you, feel like, do you feel like people feel secure? No, there are some people who do need help. Yeah, they... What are the numbers like at visiting? Uh, probably 20, 30 meals go out each day, yeah. Because I, I'm like I remember when I was having my homeless experience, the, the 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 food that I look forward to most came from food not bombs. The difference between you guys and say a Saint Vinny's um, sort of situation that came out with the food van is that they almost make you feel guilty for accepting the food. You felt judged. Oh, no. <laughs> And and that and that never ever happened when visiting food not bombs. The food was a hot meal. It was freshly made. Um, yeah, it was just just and just the the, the general um, vibe around the place was a lot better and a lot more positive than what it was around, I guess, traditional charities. Well, yeah, I suppose when Food Not Bombs was starting, some of the people involved were squatters and people who were living on the edge of this anyway, so they knew that people would appreciate it. So has has that changed? Has has the um, I guess the 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 philo- is it less concentrating on that these days? Food not bombs. Well, at the moment we've got quite a few people who have been with lentils, and then when lentil is anything shut down, they've found another outlet to be doing their cooking for. The vegan food, so they've come along to Food Not Bombs and do the cooking. Oh, so you guys have combined? Well, they've come over to oh, Food Not Bombs. Oh, they've come over to Food Not Bombs. Okay. Um, so do you guys still do the dumpster, dumpster diving stuff? Well, that's just got a bit topical now because uh, some people were saying Food Not Bombs should be vegan, but we've got the arrangement with the grocers so we can yeah. guarantee our foods Oh, fresh okay. food, so that's probably oh, so, safer and better than. Okay, so you, you, because your role is to provide food consistently, and it's uh, I guess dumpster diving isn't reliable. Yeah, yeah, but then again, at the Catalyst Centre in Coburg, they have what's called a really free market, 
which does serve what they found. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess it allows people to be more independent. I guess it's a, you know it gives them control over their own food sort of situation. If there's another way of accessing food that that isn't through the market, yes, the marketplace, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, so, what would you say the the food not bombs philosophy is, or has that changed over the years? Is no. it just is it just, just getting... to provide the food? Yeah. Okay, so if people want to volunteer their time or learn more about Food Not Bombs, how can they get in contact? Yes, uh, there's an email, fnbmelb at riseup.net or they can visit the website fnbmelb at noblogs.org and then we're on Instagram and Facebook if you just look up Food Not Bombs NAM, N-A-A-R-M. Okay, so um, thanks thanks for coming on to Thursday Breakfast, Chris. Uh-huh. I really appreciate it. Um, and for telling us about Food Not Bombs, I guess, you know, like I don't know where a lot of people, well, I don't know where I would have done without Food Not Bombs and I was having my experience, man. Uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah, thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you for having me. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a chat between Chris Rust from Food Not Bombs Melbourne and Spike. And they were talking about uh, food security and the work that Food's Not Bomb, Food Not Bombs does uh, in the cost of living crisis and you know how essential this grassroots community organizing is to support people that are really doing it tough as they feel the pinch um, under rising grocery prices. And um, also, as you heard, uh, always looking for volunteers. So we'll have information in our show notes about uh, Food Not Bombs, uh, where you can find out as well about how to join and uh, support as well. So now we are joined by Amelia from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, or CARF, who's speaking with us to remind us about this upcoming uh, SNAP rally on Saturday to protest the far right in Sunshine. So this anti-fascist counter-rally has been called in resistance against the National Socialist Network organizing a white power lifting meet at Sunshine Legacy... Uh, sorry, Sunshine's Legacy Boxing Gym. And uh, Tuesday, Brecky got to catch up with Carf earlier this week to speak a bit about the rally and provide a bit of context. Um, but we're speaking with Amelia today to get a little bit of a reminder as well as um, some tips about how to stay safe on the day. So, Amelia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Priya. Yeah, of course. Um, so maybe we could do a, a quick recap of why it's so important that folks attend this, because we've been seeing um, an increasing emboldening of neo-Nazis in the far right in Melbourne um, with, you know, people on the steps of parliament, um, you know, in, in uh, quote, solidarity. I don't like to use that term when they do it. Um, but with anti, anti-trans protesters as well, um, and just, you know, marching around with, with sort of impunity from, uh, you know, state authorities. So um, why is it so important that communities show up in solidarity against the far right? Yeah, totally. I think everyone was pretty shocked to see the Nazis outside of Parliament House. Um, but, I mean, we've been kind of aware of a group of, self-proclaimed, you know, Nazis um, attempting to grow out of a gym in Sunshine West basically since December um, a year ago. Um, And 
since then, um, they've been holding um, events, going to uh, protests, um, and attempting to build um, their forces and to really build the movement, um, which is what um, this event on the weekend is about celebrating. Um, you know, it's about uh, them attempting to uh, build back a hard right, a far right um, in Australia. And I think that every time that there are groups like these that attempt to build far-right politics, the politics of, you know, um, racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, the politics that want to take away our rights and want to, you know, bring society back um, to a time when oppressed people, um, you know, lived, um, uh, you know, in fear, um, that the left needs to respond to that um, and to say you know, actually, this is the politics of a, a tiny fringe group. They don't represent the politics mm. of the majority of people. Um, and that actually most people in Australia support immigrants, support um, uh, uh, queer people, support trans people in Australia. Um, and so wherever you are, we're going to fight you. And um, the left will always win. Um, in Melbourne is a slogan that we say um, a lot in CAF. Um, and I think it's actually really, really important um, that... Yeah, um, people are involved in in that in that fight against the far right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned that this nationalist uh, national socialist network um, meeting that they're organizing on the Saturday is an explicit recruitment um, event, but also. Every time that the far right show up um, and are allowed uh, platforms where. You know, the state authorities obviously don't intervene um, and are, you know, it's not really that we would uh, be able to expect them to. Um, That is a source of recruitment as well. Just by being visible, they're showing people that it's okay to join. And so by resisting this actively and by showing that this is not a presence that is tolerated in our communities. I think it's it's such a fundamental way to say, you know, um, to sort of um, make sure that their recruitment strategies fail again and again. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the plan is for the day? Yeah, totally. So um, basically, uh, as I said, um, this event is being held at the Sunshine Legacy Gym, um, which is their kind of uh, stronghold, I guess is the word you could call for it. Um, and this is where they're holding this like two-day white power lifting meet where they're also going to have seminars and lunches and basically, as you said, a two-day recruitment event for the, for the far right. So we wanted to respond quite directly to that. And so we've organised a counter-rally um, for the Saturday at 2 p.m. Um, we're meeting at um, IGA uh, Sunshine West, which is about a 25-minute walk from the actual gym. We thought it was really important to meet a little bit further away um, where people, um, you know, the left, left-wing people can come and meet um, and we can march down together as a united block um, down to the, uh, the boxing gym. Um, there, um, you know, the plan is to have speeches, chants, um, basically act as a political opposition to the politics that they're, they're touting. Um, and then we will, yeah, march back um, uh, together. Yeah, fantastic. And, I mean, it's also, you know, such an important 
um, political action to not cede space uh, by going and taking up space outside of this um, outside of this meeting and and saying you know we're here there are more of us than you we're louder than you and your uh, like horrible politics are not reflected by the broader community um, and don't belong here so um, I was also hoping that you could speak to how people can keep themselves safe and others uh, and others safe as well before and during the event as well as afterwards yeah I mean I think um, like the first thing to say is that rallies like this are designed to be as you said, like, yeah, political opposition to the politics of these people. Um, not, uh, you know, the intention isn't to get into, um, you know, a physical kind of fights with these people at all. Um, so I think um, there are a couple of, like, tips, though, that I would say for people who, um, you know, are thinking about coming to this rally, and I encourage everyone to do so. Um, you know, come as a group, like, get a group of friends together, come down to the rally together, drive if you can as well, because it's a little bit further out. Um, and then once you're at the rally, um, listening to our, you know, really experienced uh, marshalling team. So we have a team of people who are going to be managing the rally and making decisions about um, where we're going and, um, you know, how to keep the, the rally safe, basically. And these are people who have been long-term anti-fascist activists. So listening to what they say, if they tell you, you know, let's move over here, listening to those directions. And then afterwards, you know, um, leaving together as a group, leaving with your friends, debriefing the rally together, talk about how it went, and then, yeah, get ready to, to come to the, the next one and, um, you know, help build the anti-far-right movement, I think. Yeah, I think um, that uh, that tip as well about, about staying together is so important. And, you know... Um, Sometimes these things can be unpredictable um, when um, when neo-Nazis panic. Um, so I, I think it is important um, for folks to yeah make sure that you stick together with a crew that you um, you kind of know who you know um, there, so that if you do need to touch base with anybody, there are supportive folks around. Um, you know, it's about political opposition and resistance, and it's um, it's about you know taking a really strong stand. But obviously, we want to make sure that people are safe in the process. And um, you know, I think uh, Carf is going to do an excellent job of uh, making sure that people are people are staying safe during that process. Um, so, really appreciate you guys organizing this resistance action. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Um, I guess just I just want to put a call out to people who are thinking about coming and are a bit unsure. I just think that being part of movements like this are both so important um, politically, but also can be really invigorating. And actually, you know, there is a sense that, um, you know, a bunch of the politics that they're touting um, is everywhere in society. The kind of racist and sexist ideas, the transphobic ideas that, we see the far right um, and also the right, more generally, the conventional right, um, try and um, establish um, in society. I think it can be really important and empowering for yourself as well to be part of a rally that's actually fighting back against the right. So I really encourage anyone um, who thinks it's important to come along. And um, the more people we have, the more successful it will be and the bigger political statement it will be. Uh, um, so, yeah, hope to see everybody there. 
Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And um, we'll have all of the information about uh, where the rally is and about the organizing that CARF does in our show notes. But Amelia, thank you again. Thank you so much, Priya, for having me on. No worries. And that was Amelia from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, or CARF, who joined us with a reminder about this Saturday's snap rally to protest the far right in sunshine. And this is an anti-fascist counter rally that's been called in resistance against the National Socialist Network organizing a white power lifting meet at Sunshine's Legacy Boxing Gym. So CARF has asked rally attendees to meet at the Sunshine West IGA car park at 2 p.m. on Saturday to stand in solidarity against fascist recruitment and to continue to build the movement against the far right. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, and it is just coming up to 8 o'clock in the morning. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're joined by Michael Kane, National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union, to talk about the urgent need for labor protections for transport gig workers, including rideshare and food delivery workers. Our conversation today comes in the wake of the tragic road death of another food delivery worker in Sydney over the past weekend. The 12th food delivery driver known to have been killed in Australia since 2017, although these numbers are likely underreported. An April 2023 report by the McKell Institute documenting the experiences of over a thousand transport gig workers in Australia has outlined pressing concerns faced by these workers regarding low pay, unstable working conditions and workplace hazards. So, Michael, thank you very much for joining me to unpack some of these issues. Thanks very much. Very good to be here. Yeah, um, I really appreciate you making the time. So, uh, I thought we could begin by talking a bit about where transport gig workers sit in relation to transport employees as recognised in Australian law. So in the lead up to the last uh, federal election, Labor committed to giving the Fair Work Commission new powers to set minimum standards for workers engaged in, quote, employee-like, end quote, forms of work, which would cover workers in the gig economy. So could you clarify what the term employee-like means in relation to transport gig work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a situation where we're facing really old law. Uh, this is 200-year-old law uh, that we've inherited from 
uh, from the English. Uh, and really in, in Australia, uh, we've got um, really just a two-tiered system. You're an employee, and if you are, you're engaged by your employer and you receive a bundle of rights and protections that have been built up really over the last 120 years in Australia. And they're protections that we all know about, protections from um, having your uh, engagement unfairly uh, ended, you know, unfair sackings. You, you get a minimum wage. You get the right to um, uh, health and safety protections. You get the right to take leave. Um, all of these things have been built up for years and years. If you're an independent contractor, you're a worker that works as an independent contractor, you get none of those protections. And the issue has arisen with the gig economy uh, that those workers in the gig economy, particularly food delivery riders, rideshare workers, etc., they are so close to looking like employees that we've protected over this 120 years, but the courts have found them on the old 200 years test to be independent contractors. And, of course, the gig companies know this. They've deliberately pushed these workers outside of the system. And what that means is, of course, that all of a sudden they have no rights. So the employee-like proposal is to say, if, as workers, under our old laws, you fall outside of the system, but you have all of the hallmarks of dependency that an employee might, or many of them, then you should get protections, and that's what the new system is designed to do. Yeah, I, I think that's a perfect description. And I mean, after this past weekend's tragedy, it's really clear that there is an urgent need for reform in worker protections for transport gig workers. And, you know, further issues faced by transport gig workers were raised in a recent report by Mikel, uh, which was a survey of over a thousand transport gig workers in Australia, highlighting some serious concerns about worker remuneration and conditions. Uh, so can you take us through some of the report's most concerning findings? Yeah, sure. First thing to note about the report from Macau is it's the first non-company commissioned report of this size. So over a thousand workers, not commissioned by a company. There's plenty of plenty of reports out there commissioned by Uber mm. uh, for their own purposes. Uh, so this is an independent report. And what it does is it busts this flexibility myth. Uh, of course, um, workers in the gig economy like the idea that they can um, sign on to the app at a time that suits them. That's fine. Um, but what this report shows us is that there's no flexibility for these workers at all, other than the time that they sign onto the app. There's 81% of them rely on, on the income that they gain um, from this work uh, to look after themselves and pay their bills. Of course, the companies um, have adverts right around the country as if this is kind of beer money on the side for, 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 for workers at um, university. That's not the case. People rely on this income. Um, 69% said they've got to work during peak hours to make enough money. So if you have to log on at a particular point in time to make enough money, then, of course, that's not a hallmark of flexibility. Mm. And 74% said that they have to use multiple apps to make enough money. Again, you've got um, gig riders and gig workers and rideshare workers who are having to multi-app, three or four apps, and trying to juggle that to make enough money. Um this is really, um, really critical for us here, that the longer you drive, then proportionally the less you earn, because um, if you uh, are on the app for a number of hours, many of those hours that uh, you're on the app and you're not getting paid anything, you're just waiting at the end of the app for work. Mm. So this means that um, many of these workers are, are working for less than the minimum wage in Australia, 
Um, they're under real pressure um, to work as fast and as hard as they can when that work comes through so that they can make a living for themselves and their families. And, of course, that's not a recipe for flexibility and it's not a recipe for any worker that we want in our country. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, pushing this boundary between flexibility and, like, exploitation um, straight out, where, um, as you've mentioned, uh, such a large proportion of people that are working in in these types of roles uh, rely on this as a primary source of income. And so uh, by being able to sort of Uh, flout the kind of labor protections uh, that exist for employees proper, um, these companies are then able to kind of divest themselves of responsibility for actively protecting workers, for making sure that there is some sort of fair remuneration um, that you know, when workers are subjected to things like abuse and harassment on the job, that that is a company uh, response that's required. So, um, the Fair Work Commission is currently undertaking a process of consultation about setting minimum standards for workers in employee-like forms of work, including transport gig workers. So uh, what are some of the key issues that need to be taken into account in these standards based on what we've been talking about? Yeah, well, Priya, I think you've uh, really hit the nail on the head with um, that description. Really, it's about a lack of standards. So we've just spoken about why. That is, our law is hopelessly out of date. If you're an independent contractor, even if you're highly reliant on those that engage you, like food delivery workers are, like rideshare workers are, um, you've got no rights because you're classified as an independent contractor, and that means a lack of standards. And one of the key standards that you lack um, is um, the right to an appropriate rate of pay. Now, in the transport industry, um, there's nearly four decades' worth of evidence. This is, you know, empirical, independent evidence, academic evidence, it's judicial reports, it's coronial inquiries, uh, it's government reports, which show an absolute inextricable link between the amount that transport workers paid and safety outcomes. If you're paid uh, an amount which is too low, um, then workers are forced to work too fast or too long to make a living for themselves and their families, and either of those are deadly. Too fast, of course, it goes without saying, too long and the fatigue issues uh, start hitting. So there is a link between pay and safety, and um, these workers need to have standards put in place to ensure that they're paid enough so they don't have to work helpful whether to make a living. And, of course, if we get that right and support that with protections from unfair terminations, you know, these workers face deactivations without explanation, and those deactivations are often driven by artificial intelligence through the app all of a sudden they say, you are deactivated from this app and it could be because of a customer review that's unfair, etc. but there's no way to challenge it. Mm. So you've got to have unfair dismissal rights to support your standards. You've got to have rights to leave, to be able to take sick leave when you're unwell. These workers were the heroes of the pandemic career, delivering to businesses and homes before there was any sign of a vaccine. And they had no sick leave. Um, mm. And so they had to work through, some of them with COVID, Um, And these are the types of standards that we need to put in place to support these workers into the future. Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, what you've sort of touched on just shows the kind of appalling lack of regard in... um, in sort of federal legislation for for the the dignity and rights of these workers, um, you know, just as any other workers should be protected, you know, failing to, to provide them with 
you know, basic standards around fair dismissal, around sick leave, um, around being able to maintain their job security. I, I think it's, you know, it, it seems like it really, um, really just quite a minimal ask, really, to have these protections um, included in, in law and in regulation. Um but I'm also wondering if you could speak to the necessity of making agreements with large companies directly, as the Transport Workers Union did with Uber around this time last year. So could you give us your reflections on uh, changes in enforceable rights for transport gig workers engaged via the Uber platform since signing that charter? Well, this is a really important development. Um, and it's, in one sense, it's quite breathtaking. We've had these companies, particularly led by Uber, um, entering our market in, in 2011, who disrupted the market quite deliberately. And, of course, they were able to do that because they were able to um, cut their business costs because of what we've been talking about, Priya, um, pushing these workers outside of um, uh, the systems um, that we've built up, and that gives them a massive competitive cost against other transport companies uh, in the economy. But now, having disrupted the economy, uh, they can see some real... Um, storms brewing for their business on the horizon. And those, those, those storms really have two aspects to them. Number one, reputation. And you and I have just spent uh, the better part of the last 10 minutes talking about quite literally how these forms of work are killing workers mm. uh, on our roads um, and leaving others who really destitute and with poverty wages. That's a reputational risk that is really starting to bite in the community. Um, and secondly, breathtakingly, these companies are now concerned about other competition coming to undermine them. Because when you have no standards available, then it's only a matter of time that your business becomes so big that there's a drag there and more nimble operators can come mm. in and drive the standards even lower. So these companies are now saying to us, actually, we agree with you, Transport Workers Union, we agree that we actually have to have a floor of standards in place. We need it for our reputation and we need it for sustainable competition. And that's really important also for those transport operators in our economy, good transport operators that have um, been in our economy for years, that are doing the right thing, engaging employers with appropriate standards. Um, because otherwise they are going to be undercut and their business is going to be um, unviable into the future. So um, these agreements are really important. Um, they commit um, not only Uber, but DoorDash and Menulog, um, really the three big, big ones in our economy, uh, to be with us on the journey to reform. Now, of course, they have a different view about what that reform should look like, but the basic notion that we need reform, we need sustainable competition, we need a set of standards in place for workers... Um, is why we signed these arrangements with these companies. It's a significant step forward, um, and we think that that's one of the key elements in this being able to get sustainable and workable legislation um, through this uh, through this parliament in the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think also signing that charter served as a significant public commitment made by the Transport Workers Union to fight for and uphold employment rights and protection, protections for transport gig workers. So I was wondering if you could speak to levels of union membership among transport gig workers as well, considering, you know, um, we've seen uh, with with the, the fast kind of proliferation and growth of these kinds of rideshare and food delivery platform-based services uh, that there's been a huge 
growth in uh, the number of workers that are engaged with these services. But uh, what, how does that kind of translate to, to union engagement? Yeah, well, this is a really pivotal question. In fact, it's probably the most pivotal question because, of course, these companies push these workers outside of those protections to try and push them away from collectively getting together um, to advance um, their working conditions. And mm. um, when you splinter workers, as we know, uh, then you're more able to exploit them. When workers come together in union, because let's face it, that's what a union means, workers coming together and acting together. When workers come together in union, they have the power to make a real difference. And that was shown by the uh, riders a couple of years ago in Hungry Panda. Mm. Um, those riders um, faced a situation where they had unilateral changes uh, to their contracts, rates slashed, uh, runs um, decimated, um, and workers sacked when they raised an issue about it. Two key workers sacked when they raised an issue. They came together, they joined the union together on mass, uh, and those workers were reinstated, and the work changes um, uh, slashes were reversed. You know, that's the power of union, and, um, and, and of course, the companies don't want that, um, but we need to ensure that we get that across um, the gig economy. It's really hard to organise workers in the gig economy, of course, because of those lack of rights. But when they do come together, we see the hungry panda type of arrangement. You know, Priya, it's really critical, not only for these workers, but for workers who are in union together in the rest of our economy. There are thousands, tens of thousands of um, transport workers in the TWU in good, solid, traditional transport arrangements. And they're fighting as well for this reform because they know that if they can get reform to this sector, which is undercutting the companies that they work for, then they enhance their job security. So this is a, a fight for fresh union membership, people to come together in the gig economy and fight like the Hungry Panda workers did, but also for existing union membership to say, yes, we need these standards in place, not only so these workers are looked after, but so that our job security is taken care of as well. Yeah, I think recognizing uh, the importance of solidarity across um, employment type uh, within the transport industry, but also a recognition of the interdependence between these different kinds of work is, is so fundamental there. Uh, now, finally, I was hoping to get your thoughts on increasing protections for transport gig workers on the level of state government. So the Victorian government recently introduced a set of voluntary fair conduct and accountability standards for platforms engaging non-employee gig workers workers. And this was a national first and came in force uh, in uh, from the 1st of May 2023. So should other state and territory governments be introducing similar measures? And do you think they go far enough? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think the way to deal with that is, is, is to say this, it, any provision that we can put in place at a state level, which seeks to advance the interests of, of um, gig workers is, is important and it's much appreciated. Um, but there are much better systems than the Victorian systems that, that already exist. Um, in New South Wales, there's a long-standing system for transport workers, which the new MINS government is, uh, has committed to amending to ensure that it better covers gig arrangements, and that will allow standards um, to be put in place for gig workers in New South Wales. Um, in Queensland, there's a, there's, a, there's a new set of laws that are sitting on the books. Um, they're waiting at the moment to see... Um, how they'll interact with uh, any new federal legislation that's passed by the by the federal parliament, but those laws on paper look very good too, and are and are highly highly enforceable, and will really 
um, ensure that standards are in place. And there are other initiatives in place in Western Australia and, and um, starting to take place in South Australia as well. Now, it is critical that these laws um, at a state level are put in place because there are state differences and metropolitan differences um, that need to be taken into account, even when we have federal legislation, um, uh, which we are really hopeful will occur before the end of the year. And, of course, at, at the state level, there's the critical question of making sure that workers' compensation systems cover these workers. You know, when the worst happens and workers are injured or, or killed, um, then support is absolutely critical. And at the moment, there's no automatic right for gig workers um, in the gig systems, and not only in the workers' compensation systems, and not only that, gig companies are not required to contribute to workers' compensation systems. And that, that eventually will start to drag down those systems because they'll become financially unviable. So a critical role for the states to play, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that point on workers' compensation is is so fundamental and, and returns us to the sort of tragic story um, you know, that we that we heard over this past weekend. So is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Look, I think the key thing here is um for for everyone and, and listeners to remember that all we're doing here uh is is fixing old outdated laws. And it's such an urgent, urgent thing that needs to be done by the federal parliament. You know, workers pushed outside of the system. We've built up as a community for decades, deliberately pushed outside, even though they're highly reliant and look really very much like those workers that we need to protect. The results of not protecting them are workers that are dying on our roads, now 12 that have been reported since 2017. But we know that there's a massive underreporting issue here. Um, we know... Um, that workers are attending emergency rooms um, in groves and are not being reported as workplace um, uh, injuries. So, you know, this is vital for us. It's vital for, for people to stay alive, fundamental, uh, for people not to be injured, but to be able to have recourse when that happens and to be able to lift the pressures that lead them to being placed in that, place, I mean, that, in that forced work environment uh, in the first place. If we want to build real flexibility for gig workers, real flexibility on the terms of workers, not on the terms of companies, uh, then we need to put this reform in place so that we can build standards and lift the pressures that are on them at the moment. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to speak with us. And we'll have information about the Transport Workers Union in our show notes. And we'll also have some information there about the Gig Workers Support Service that is currently um, a Victorian government initiative running to um, help appraise transport gig workers of their rights and uh, to resolve workplace disputes. But really appreciate you making the time. Thanks very much, Priya. All right. And that was Michael Kane, National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union, who joined us to talk about the urgent need for labour protections for transport gig workers, including rideshare and food delivery workers. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855am. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays.
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, just wanted to play a special little track to get people G'd up for the rally, the counter rally against fascist organizing in the West that is being organized by CARF. This one is White Dog by Coffin. What's up? 
that was White Dog by Coffin. Uh, and another reminder for everyone to attend that rally against the far right in Sunshine organized by CARF. And we'll have all the information in our show notes. Now, just a little special announcement about the next show coming up. Uh, talk back with Attitude. Uh they're going to be focusing on Barrack Beacon and the campaign to save Barrack Beacon and support public housing. Demolition has begun at the Barrack Beacon estate in Port Melbourne, but Margaret Kelly is still standing strong. Uh, this has been such a long-standing fight against the destruction of public housing. We do not need to destroy public housing to build more public housing. So, uh, Leela, do you want to take us away with the details? Yeah, so that's going to be happening from eleven, from 10 to 11 today. Talk back with Attitude, hosted by Dr. Joe Toscano and Pat Core will be broadcasting this week from the vigil at the Barrack Beacon Estate at the corner of Beacon Road and the Boulevard Port Melbourne. Um, and you can follow that at uh, on air at 8.55am or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash talkback. And you can also go join the live broadcast uh, by going to Barrack Beacon and supporting the vigil in person. It is going on um, for the rest of the week and it'll keep going into next week. So really encourage people to get down there and support the fight to save public housing. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855am. And we're coming up to the end of today's show. So... um, Just as a quick recap on what we covered, we were joined by Bernie Dean, uh, Industry Super Australia, Um, Chris from Food Not Bombs, CARF, and Michael Kane from the Transport Workers Union. We'll catch you next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Goodbye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.